So Luke 11, let's begin reading at verse 14. The text says, and this is, I want you to note the brevity. He was casting out a demon, and it was mute. When the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke, and the crowds were amazed. But some of them said, he cast out demons by Beelzebub, the ruler of demons. Others, to test him, were demanding of him a sign from heaven. But he knew their thoughts and said to them, Any kingdom divided against itself is laid waste. A house divided against itself falls. If Satan also is divided against himself, how can his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebub. And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? And so they will be your judges. But if I cast out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. This is a text that deals with a topic that I think many people in our day and age are skeptical of. The topic of the supernatural realm. The topic of demons. And all I can say to you is this. The New Testament clearly asserts the activity of a demonic realm. A realm that causes things that you can't explain from a natural perspective. If you talk to enough people along the way in your life, you're going to find that people have had encounter with things that they can't explain from a natural perspective. Those activities sometimes are moves of God. Supernatural works of God to gain the attention of people, to cause the gospel of Christ to come to light. But often we have the work of the evil one seeking to distract people from the kingdom of God and from the power and work of the gospel. The context of this story, this account of this healing, and then the interaction that follows it, is the context of tension rising in the public ministry of Christ. All right, there is an attraction of crowds when Christ is teaching. There are large groups of people, sometimes upwards of 15,000 by the Sea of Galilee. The Pharisees, quite frankly, are irritated by a Savior who loves sinners and seeks a relationship with them. And so they begin to snipe. They begin to attack. Light armor divisions from the Pharisees coming to assault the work that Jesus Christ is doing. And that is exactly what happens in the account that is before us this morning. In this text, they become more confrontational and more direct. It's less innuendo. It's more of a frontal assault on the work of Jesus. The text tells us the story of an undisputed miracle in the most abridged form possible. A man was mute, Jesus cast out the demon, and as a result, the man spoke. Now, for everyone there, that would be an indisputable miracle. You have a word from Christ to the demon, you have evidence of departure and evidence of restoration. So what you have is an event that is not really disputable. It is an event that captures a deliverance. Someone in bondage has been set free because that's what the Savior comes to do always. In contrast to that, here's an observation that just jumped into my mind as I was studying this text. Whenever Satan comes to influence a life, his influence is always destructive. Does that ever fascinate you? Satan comes promising what? joy and satisfaction and peace. You'll be happy if you try this or if you indulge in this. And he gains a stronghold in someone's life, but at the end of his stronghold, it's always to kill and destroy. 
to pull you and I out of the relationship that God intended to have us to have with him, where we would find joy and peace and satisfaction. The evil one's aim is to attack that and to destroy it. It starts in the Garden of Eden, and it works out through the storyline of Scripture. Jesus comes to reverse that, to bring against the evil one a frontal assault through the cross where he will defeat the strongest tool of the enemy and set people free. That's the glory of the gospel. What I also noticed in this text is that with this miracle, there is no incantation. There's no extended formula. It's a simple power encounter. It doesn't say Jesus raises his voice. It doesn't say that he put you know, this individual through a process. There was a confrontation with Jesus. There was a calling for deliverance, and there was a deliverance. It's that simple in this text, which to me is amazing in contrast to much of what we hear today. The other thing that we learn from this text is that the crowd was stunned by this immediate response of evil and the influence, obviously in this case, of Satan to the word of Christ. If you go back to Luke chapter 4, verse 36, it says this, that the miracle of deliverance there, it says the crowd was amazed and they say, what is this with power and authority he commands and they leave, they listen which starts to give you an indication of what? That the activity of Christ, the miracles that Christ is doing, in the eyes of the observers who had seen the Pharisees' minions doing this, the way that they responded to the name of Christ and to the power of Christ was unprecedented. And the response is, we have have never seen anything like this. A powerful deliverance, a full deliverance in the power of God. So in this story, what do we have? We have a miracle. We have a clear deliverance. Now, what I want to do is walk you through a few words to try to summarize this text. The first word I'm going to give you is the word accusation. This is the response of the Pharisees to the clear miracle of Christ. Notice what it says. It says, verse 15, But some of them said, He cast out demons by Beelzebub, the ruler of demons. So then you've got to ask yourself a question. Okay, who's this Beelzebub guy? Well, the text gives you the definition, right? It says he's the ruler of demons. And if you work your way through the text description more, you'll find that ultimately this is Satan in control of the hordes of demons that are at his beck and call. If you go back into the Old Testament, I believe it's 2 Kings, you'll find that the god of Ekron was Beelzebub. Okay, and there's a strong connection to this. That name meaning Lord of the Flies, Lord of Dung. Does that surprise you? But that's who he is. He is the Lord of that which is destructive, corrupting, and corruptible. And there's an encounter between Jesus and Satan in this text. And it's fascinating how the Pharisees respond to the account. Their accusation, first of all, is he is controlling demons because he is in cahoots with the ruler of the demons. Okay, so that's their accusation. Attribute the work of Christ and of God through Christ, his son, to the work of the evil one. If you go back to Matthew 12, you'll find that that is called the unpardonable sin. The sin that can't be overcome is what? Is to consistently attribute the clear work of God, the clear assault on the kingdom of the evil one, to the work of Satan. 
Why? Because if the miracles that God has given to call our hearts out and to change our hearts as they're recorded in Scripture and experienced in life, if they don't bring us to a place of repentance, the question becomes this, what else could you do to open someone's heart and to bring them to repentance? So the first accusation is he is an agent of Satan. Secondly, verse 14, you find this response. Some of them were saying, do another one. That was cool. We're amazed. Do another. And there is this obsession with what? With wanting to see powerful acts of God, but not being changed by those acts of God. Both are dangerous responses to the work of God. If I'm purely a skeptic who observes and is fascinated but never changed, I'm in a dangerous place. Or if I see the work of God clearly performed in front of me in a way that is astonishing and I attribute it to the work of Satan, what else is there? Do you see? That becomes the question. So the accusation comes against Christ. What I want you to notice is this. There is no debate in the text about the validity of the miracle. Does that surprise you? Do you realize that often through the scriptures, Jesus is performing miracles, and the heart of religious people, people that think they get to heaven based on their performance, was, his, was the text in chapter 9 that Doug spoke on last week? People that think they get to heaven by performance are deeply disturbed by a Savior who radically changes your life apart from your performance. And the Pharisees are in the category of people that say to people, you know, if you follow our rules, your future's bright. But they lead them path to de- down a path of destruction, as we will see momentarily. So there's no debate about whether the miracle is valid, whether or not it actually happened. They know it happened. The man that's born blind. Remember the response of the Pharisees? There's not a debate about whether or not the miracle is valid. The question is, did he not do that on the wrong day of the week? Right? I mean, and that's the, whoa, oh, you know what? You're right. And no astonishment, no amazement at what God did. And what it points out, I think, is a shocking hardness of the human heart. You ever been surprised by the hardness of your heart? Has it ever caught you off guard? How can I think that? And when that happens, here's what I hope you do. I hope you cry out to God and say, God, help me. God, strengthen me. Fight against the call of the evil one in my life. And keep me free for your glory. The aim of both responses is to set up an alternate explanation for why the miracle happened. To downgrade Jesus to just a man who works in cahoots with the evil one, not the son of God. That is the aim. Now, secondly, I want you to see the defense of Christ. So there's a miracle, there's an accusation against Christ, or a call for more miracles, which means they're skeptical. In either case, the miracle is somewhat discounted, not as to its relevance or whether or not it actually happened, but as to the source of it. That he really didn't do that in the name of God, because the religious leaders thought they were on the side of God. Jesus' response. Look at verse 17 in the text. It says, but he knew their thoughts and said to them, which had to catch them a little off guard. They're thinking, they're sidebarring in the quiet about how Jesus is doing this and about the the credibility of his ministry. Isn't he kind of in coots with Satan if he can do that? Because we can't do that. And so they sidebar. Jesus knows exactly what they're saying. Even though he is not audibly hearing them, he's hearing them. And he calls them out. 
I love, I wish I could do that. He knew their thoughts and said to them, wouldn't you love to be having a conversation with someone and while they're sitting there, you say to them, I know what you're thinking. Or you don't even have to say that, you just say exactly what they're thinking. That's what Jesus does to these guys. He knew their thoughts and he said to them, hey, any kingdom divided against itself is laid waste and a house divided against itself falls. What is he saying? Your accusation that I'm in cahoots with Satan is utterly ludicrous. Why would Satan undermine his own ministry? Why would he undermine his own kingdom? But it's all they... Do you understand this? When there's a real miracle done by Christ, you have to throw out something so they react in the moment. And what they say is proven to be utterly ludicrous. Jesus is like, wait, you think I'm working for Satan, destroying Satan? The response is what? I don't know that I really have to say a lot to people who think that way. But that's the way the evil one, that's the way religion will corrupt your mind. Do you understand? It will twist your thinking so that things that are irrational seem rational. And sometimes as a, as, a, as a friend in Christ, you'll sit back and say, how could I at times, and how, or how could that person think that that decision would yield a good result? Somebody said, what am I thinking? Jesus is saying the explanation that I am working as a worker for Satan against Satan is absolutely ludicrous. I want you to notice, and this is the part that to me is amazing about this text. Look at verse 19. Jesus said, if I, by Beelzebub, I'm going to say by Satan, cast out demons, this is powerful, then by whom do your sons cast them out? And and you wonder, what does this exactly mean? Because after it, he says, so they will be your judges. And, And most commentators lean in this direction. The followers of the Pharisees know how they operate and how it works in their world. They saw Jesus work in a way that's totally different than how they work. And they're amazed. They're not buying the explanation of the Pharisees. And the danger for the Pharisees is what? That they will see the truth. Of what Christ can do and religion has never accomplished. And they will flee to Christ. And in that fleeing to Christ, they will render a verdict on the Pharisees' conclusion that Jesus works for Satan. Does that make sense? It's a little complicated, but it's powerful. Jesus seems to be saying the conversion of your followers will be a judgment against you that what I have done is true. Because the change that they are seeing in people's lives cannot be explained by your foolish accusation that I am working with the evil one. Does that make sense? So what you have is what? You have a deliverer working in powerful ways, in instantaneous ways, in bringing kingdom of God. So you have an accusation. You have the defense of Jesus, which basically is to say, as you see people experience the inbreaking of the kingdom and they are drawn to faith in God and their lives are changed and demons are truly expelled, what's going to happen? You're going to look really foolish for attributing the work of God to the work of Satan. So what does Jesus say? He says, okay, you have your explanations for what's happening. You think it's me and cahoots with Satan. Some of you are skeptical that it really happened. You're asking for more. Here's my suggestion. This is the word of Christ. Notice what he says. He says, verse 20, and this is the final defense, okay? 
If I cast out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God is standing before you. That's powerful. Where's this finger of God theme come from? Anybody know? Okay, Moses in the Old Testament, be more specific. Okay, that's one of them. Okay, I wasn't even thinking of that one. The writing on the wall, many, many Tekelo Farson, found in, weighed in the balances, found wanting. I didn't even make that connection. There's another connection. The Exodus. The Ten Commandments, too. Okay, in the Exodus, what happens? Moses goes in and starts to unleash plagues under the authority of God. Right? There's three plagues. I forget the exact ones, but there are three plagues. Throwing down the uh, staff and the snake, and then all of a sudden, the magicians and enchanters, they do the same thing. And then they cry. It's funny when they get to the gnats all over people, that plague that is controlling nature at a realm that you can't control it and that apparently Satan does not have authority. And when that happens, what are the... Pharaoh's like, come on, do something. Best that man that represents God. And who is Jesus? He's the greater Moses. The miracles of Christ are reflected in the work of Moses, a deliverer, because Jesus is what? He's the greater Moses. And, and when the Pharisees see Moses, or the, when, when Pharaoh, it's interesting, Pharaoh and Pharisees is pretty close. That's not a connection. Okay, don't, don't, don't try that. But when they see Moses do something they can't do, they go to Pharaoh. What do they say? Pharaoh. This is the finger of God. Which is what? It's Pharaoh's minions accusing him What we've been doing, Pharaoh, is enchantment. It's sorcery. That is the hand of God. But all of a sudden, you see the connection. Pharisees are used to enchantment, sorcerers, that working in the demonic realm, but not at the bidding of God. And their workers, all of a sudden, eyes open. This is the finger of God. And Jesus calls on that Old Testament text, which for him is ludicrous, unless what he's doing is valid. Does that make sense? A stronger one than Moses is here. And what does Jesus say? Jesus says, if I'm casting out demons by the hand of God, then the kingdom of God is right in front of you, and you're rejecting it. The, the possibility of deliverance and true freedom, of which the miracles and the casting out of demons is only a foreshadowing. The problem in the American church, and honestly in the church around the world, is what? We've made the sideshow central. Luke 10, we looked at this text a few weeks ago. Jesus sends the disciples out to do miracles and to proclaim the gospel of the kingdom of God. They come back. What do they say to Jesus? They're like, you are not going to believe this. Even the demons are subject to us in your name. What does Jesus say? Start a ministry called deliverance from demons. No. No. Jesus says, don't make a lot of the miracles. They're there. They are the inbreaking of the kingdom. They are evidence of the presence of God. But they are pointing to something greater. Folks, you can be delivered from demons and die and spend eternity separated from God. What you need is a heart transplant. What you need is a radical life change. And this text is saying that Jesus works under the power of God. Which means that the change that he brings is fundamentally different than the change that any religious empire can bring. And the Pharisees had a religious empire. And it was starting to crumble because of the finger of God. Now, I just make this point to you. 
Why would Jesus say this is the finger of God instead of the arm of God? Why? Because the Pharisees and religious establishments are no threat to the kingdom of God. This is the finger of God. And Pharaoh mocked that and went down in destruction. And Jesus calls out to these people. Saying the very fact that demons are cast out is a sign that God is at work. And that's the thrust of this text. The illustration then of this is verses 21 and 22. Now, this illustration that he is stronger, that this is just the finger of God, now finds an illustration, and the illustration is the answer from Jesus about the assault of the evil one and about his ministry. Jesus says, when a strong man, fully armed, guards his own house, his possessions are undisturbed. Okay, so you get someone who, you know, I, I, Dan's like, okay, is my illustration of a strong man, okay? So, Dan, I look at you when I say this, okay? If I'm around Dan, I, I have this kind of false courage. You know what I'm saying? I had friends when I was younger. We went to see the Rocky movie, the first one. These guys were big. And I was the smallest kid in my class, okay? We were in the fourth row at the movie theater. I wasn't even allowed to go to movies at that time. My parents, I don't know if they still know that I went and saw that movie back then. <laughs> Interesting thought. We're in the fourth row. You get to the end of the thing and everybody's yelling Rocky in the crowd. These three guys stand up, block everybody's view, and start yelling Rocky, Rocky. And I'm like, I'm with them. I'm standing up. <laughs> so the whole theater was standing up by the end of it, okay? Here's what happened. The, that they were strong gave me confidence. But when we encountered a group of people that were stronger, guess what? I became like a pipsqueak. I can't, became what I really was at that time. Okay, here's what Jesus says. I want you to notice how he now illustrates his answer, which goes against their accusation. You're working with Satan. Jesus says, oh, no. When a strong man fully armed, he's he's up for it. When he guards his own house, everything he has is undisturbed. He is totally and completely safe, as are his possessions. But this is the answer. When someone stronger than he attacks him and overpowers him, he takes away from him all of his armor on which he relied and distributes his plunder. He strips him naked and shames him. And takes plunder. Takes possessions. This comes up later in the the book of Ephesians. It says that Jesus went into a battle with death. And he conquered. What is he? And this is what the miracle of deliverance points to. The greater work of Christ. It's why if you focus on miracles and miss what they point to, you are missing the greatest message the Bible has. That there is a Savior who can set you free for eternity. He went into death, Ephesians 1 says. And when he came out of it, he led captives in his train. And the idea is that these are prisoners of war that he has released. And what is Jesus saying? He's saying when a strong man meets a stronger man, the strong man becomes nothing. And that is my answer to your question as to whether I work with Beelzebub, the Lord of demons. My answer, Jesus says, is I am stronger. And I have come to conquer. And I have come to deliver. And I have come to set free from the things that bind. 
Folks, that's the message of the gospel. And it's not purely a deliverance from the evil one. It is a complete transformation. Remember the story of the demoniac of the Gadarenes? The people from the city had come out to see what had happened to the man who was captive, bound by a strong man who met a stronger man who delivered him. And they come out and they find him what? Sitting and clothed in his right mind. Folks, that's what the gospel does. That's why if you get caught up in miracles and don't go to the aim of miracles, which is the complete deliverance of Christ through the cross, you miss it. Satan has met his match and is falling. So in Luke 10, when the disciples come back and say, oh, the demons are subject to us in your name, Jesus says, don't rejoice in that. What? (laughs) Are you kidding me? By contrast, he's arguing from lesser to greater. He's not diminishing that God can throw out demons. He's not diminishing that. He's saying, don't make the side thing the main thing. And then he says to his disciples, don't rejoice in that. Rejoice that your name is what? Written in heaven. Rejoice that you did not receive a temporary deliverance. You have received a permanent deliverance. And one day, the book of Revelation says that when the evil one is thrown down, God will write on you a new name. Folks, that's the gospel. Delivered from the power of the evil one as spoils of war, Jesus enters into that battle to bring us freedom. Not just now, but now. And not just future, but a freedom that is supposed to impact our lives today. Do you see? It's glorious. So that illustration then leads to a warning. The strong man meets a stronger man. The stronger man defeats a strong man, takes what he's been holding and sets free. And then Jesus says this, he who is not with me, and this to me is just strong. He who is not with me is against me. And he who does not gather with me scatters. And Jesus is working by the finger of God. Those that aren't with, aren't with him are against him. Those that aren't gathering with him or scattering. Who's he talking to? He's talking to religious people. He's talking to the Pharisees of his day that think the true change can come through observing rules. Folks, listen, please. Rules will never change you. Rules will never change you. Until God changes your heart, you don't have hope because you are bondage, in bondage to the strong one. But when you encounter the stronger one, awesome things that will cause marveling and amazement will begin to happen for the glory of God. Now, there's a warning that then emerges. And the warning is this. Your rejection of my work is dangerous. That's what Jesus is saying to the Pharisees. And there's a category here that emerges in Matthew chapter 12. It's the category that we know is the unpardonable sin. People say, what's the sin that can't be forgiven? Here's the sin that can't be forgiven. To, on a repeated basis, see the work of God changing lives. And you consistently attribute it to the work of man, to human effort, or to Satan. In either case, what does Jesus say? You are going down a very dangerous path. Notice what the text says next. He says, when the unclean spirit goes out of a man, 
which is what just happened, right? That's the miracle. An unclean spirit has gone out of a man, and everybody says, yay, good. Notice what it says. This is, this is, I hope this text disturbs you when you read it. And of course you say, what does that mean? And then you're hoping that I can answer your question. Okay, which makes me feel good, okay? I'm just teasing when I say that. I, just, I pondered on this. I heard my pastor preach on this years ago, and I think he got it right. When the unclean spirit goes out of a man, it passes through waterless places seeking rest and not finding any. Okay, so a spirit is cast out. There is a deliverance, a freedom that has come from the authority of the evil one. But this spirit that's been cast out goes out and wanders around. But somebody's been set free at some level. When it doesn't find a place to rest, which seems to indicate in the realm of the demonic that demons prefer to demonize, inhabit people. Seems to be the preference. It should not surprise you when you think about the work of the evil when he comes to put people in bondage and to hold them captive. And he sends a doorkeeper to do that. A strong man. Okay? Does that make sense? So the demon's been cast out of this person. The demon has gone and wandered around. And then he says, I will return to my house, my host from which I came. But when when it comes, he finds it swept and put in order. Interesting statement, right? The house that used to be occupied in a devastating way is now neatly set up. Everything looks fundamentally normal. But what does he do? He goes out and gets seven demons with him and and comes and inhabits in plurality. And the later state of that person is worse than the first. And that's fascinating. How can the later state of someone be worse than being delivered from a demon? How, how can that happen? Can I give you what I think is the simple explanation? The Pharisees delivered people from demons. Jesus does not contest with them. He says, your sons do it. How they do it, that's what the question is. So they deliver them from demons, and it looks like there's a fundamental change. Have you ever had this experience with people? They look changed. But this house doesn't say that it's occupied. It's vacant. And all the trimmings are in place. Everything looks like it should. And I'm going to make a suggestion to you. The Pharisees love to tell people how to get their house in order. But it was unoccupied by God. But what is Jesus saying? He's saying to attribute my work to the work of Satan, that's dangerous. But to think that you can deliver people by a religious cleaning is utter foolishness. Folks, my experience in life has been this. When I encounter people who have had some kind of interaction with the supernatural, can I give give you illustrations? Please, well, I'm going to just say it. I won't even try to qualify it seeing someone that has passed away in the corner of the room, looking at them laying in bed. People say to me, could that happen? Oh, yeah, it can happen. In the supernatural realm. My experience has been this. People that have had that kind of experience and make much of it are deaf to the gospel of Christ. You know why? Because they think that visual 
is a demonstrating, demonstration of the blessing of God in their life. Therefore, they have the favor of God and don't need the gospel. Does that make sense? I watch it all the time. The most difficult people for me to evangelize are people who have had some type of supernatural experience apart from the converting power of the Holy Spirit. Because they think they're okay when they're really not. And that's my fear for many people. Because when the house is swept and clean and religion has kind of gotten your life in order, it's what religious people are the hardest people to evangelize, aren't they? Their house is clean and swept in order, but they may be occupied by a horde of opponents to the gospel. So I think why the Apostle Paul in Romans 1.16, he says this, central to his ministry, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. It is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. The Jew first and also to the Greek. You know what Paul said? You know what excites me? And what Jesus said to the disciples, you know what ought to excite you? That your name is written in heaven. That your destiny, that your future residence has been secured by the blood of Christ. And that power of God that came and transformed you aims to change your life permanently. It doesn't say to you, hey, get your life in order. Clean that house up. Do, do, do. Because that's just a vacant house. Jesus comes to occupy. Jesus comes by the power of the Holy Spirit to change you. And to make you an agent of change in your world. And so the thrust of this text to me is powerful. I think it demonstrates the inception of the inbreaking of the kingdom. Every time there's a miracle, what it is, is it? It's an evidence that the kingdom of God is moving closer and that God is at work. Trust him in that work. Trust him in that work in your life. And then the last thought I draw to your attention is verse 27. While Jesus was saying these things, one of the women in the crowd with great insight raised her voice and said to him, blessed is the woman that bore you and blessed are the breasts at which you nursed. And again, he does this contrast thing. But he said, on the contrary, He's not denying that Mary had a fundamentally glorious privilege in bringing Christ through the incarnation. He's not denying that. He's not denying how powerful that is. What's he going to do? He's going to point forward to the aim of that event. So if all you ever did was live with fascination about the incarnation, how could that happen? I'm an incarnation church guy. But you never thought about why the incarnation happened you would miss the glory of Christ. So, you, Jesus, your teaching is so good, this woman. You are, you are, your mother is amazing. But it's kind of like that kind of thing. Like, I'd love to meet your mother. How would Mary respond to that? See how easily we can get switched to lesser things and miss the greater thing that they point to? Folks, listen, I am not downplaying the role of a ministry that individuals have or a gift that they have to confront the evil one and to set people free. I'm not diminishing that at all. But I will tell you this, if you make that more important than the deliverance that people, Jesus brings through his blood, you've made a mistake. And if you think that the mother of Jesus is to be worshipped because she gave birth to someone who could do amazing things, miraculous things, and his work 
What has Jesus done? He just said, you know what I just did when I cast that demon out? I was the finger of God. Wow. That really ticked him off. I am God. That miracle was the finger of God. Folks, never get caught up in the side things because they will distract you from the main thing. And the main thing is where your hope is. These thoughts in conclusion then. And I seriously mean that, okay? My sermon title this morning, He is Stronger. And that, honestly, that's all you need to know. He is stronger than any struggle that you have today. He's stronger than any sin that's present in your life. He is stronger. This story is a message of hope. A stronger one is attacking the strong man in your life and wants to set you free. And he is able to set you free. Satan is real and powerful and defeated in Christ. You don't need to pray Satan's defeat. It's done. It's done. At the cross, it is done. Jesus said when his disciples came back, Luke 10, hey, you know, the demons are cast, don't rejoice, rejoice, your name's written in heaven. Jesus looks at them, he says, you know what I saw when you went out? When you brought the inbreaking of the kingdom, he says, I saw Satan falling from heaven. I saw the beginning of his demise. And the task of the church is what? Is to fight against evil and the evil one in the name and power of Christ and the power of the cross and the gospel till the day we see him come. And he will take us into a house where there is no crying, no tears, no sin, but pure joy because the evil one is in Christ defeated. Jesus provides resources for us on a daily basis. We must take them up to fight against the evil one. This text in no way diminishes the evil one. He's there and he is strong. Christ is stronger. So Ephesians 6 gives you this call. Every day, put on the whole armor of God. Why? So you don't fall down. You don't get stabbed. So that you can stand. And having done everything to be in the end of the day, standing for the glory of God because you face an opponent and Jesus Christ stands with you. Jesus aims in his delivering power to transform your life today. I end with this text from Ephesians 1. Paul says, for this reason, having heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus which exists among you and your love for all the saints, I don't cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. That's what this this text reveals Jesus as what? He is stronger. The strong man's in the house, but the stronger man is coming. And when he comes, it's curtains. I want you to know that's what Paul's saying. He says, I pray the eyes of your heart will be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling. That in Christ, there's hope for deliverance. Permanent, not a house swept clean, but a house occupied by the presence of the Spirit of God. And that, and you will know what is the hope of his calling and what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. And what is the surpassing, the greater greatness of his power to those who believe. Those powers are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the Father's right hand in 
heavenly places. Paul later goes on to say this, that we are seated with Christ in heavenly places. Folks, you know what that means? It means that the victory of Christ belongs to every believer and that no believer has to live in the bondage of sin because he is stronger. He is stronger. Let's pray together this morning.